an army officer had been promoted to colonel, and he was in his new office when someone knocked on the door and said, this is Private Johnson, may I see you, sir? And wanting to look somewhat impressive, the colonel picked up his phone real quickly, and uh, as he said, come in, Private, and then he proceeded to talk into the phone, yes, Mr. President, I understand, Mr. President, we'll take care of it right away, Mr. President. Of course, he wasn't talking to the president, he just wanted to make it look like, did you ever do this out there in Guantanamo Bay, David? (laughs) He wants to look impressive, right? And and so he puts the phone up against his chest, excuse me, he says, Mr. President, just give me one second, and he puts the phone up against his chest, and he says, how can I help you, Private? And the private responds somewhat sheepishly, well, I just came to connect your phone. (laughs) Pride is a really, did you get it, Jill? The pride is a really deceptive thing, and it, uh, it makes us unable really to see reality. And believe it or not, even pastors are plagued with pride. I think I've told you this story before about the pastor who got all kinds of positive comments at the end of his sermon one Sunday morning, and he was just filled with it. And so on his way home, he said to his wife, he said, honey, how many really great preachers do you suppose there are in the world? And she said, one less than you think. <laughs> so uh, pride comes to play in the, in the story that we're going to look at this morning in the book of, of Obadiah, as well as indifference and apathy. We'll see them all three. The minor prophets are minor because they're the smallest prophetical books in the Bible. Obadiah is the minor of the minor prophets. He's the smallest of them all with only one chapter and 21 verses. Like the book of Joel, if you were here for our study of the book of Joel, it's really not clear as to when Obadiah wrote. Some people have suggested that he wrote as early as 850 BC. Others have said he's 312 BC, so it runs the gamut there. Uh, You know, in the Hebrew Bible, it it finds itself amongst the first prophetic books, first minor prophetic books, which tends to point maybe to an 850 sort of date for Obadiah, but then yet its context or its content almost seems to put it after the fall of of the northern kingdom and the fall of, of Judah itself. So it's really unclear as to where it falls exactly, but the message won't be affected by when Obadiah wrote. This is going to be a first for me. I've never preached from the book of Obadiah, and I would imagine that this is going to be a first for many of you. You've probably never heard a message from the book of Obadiah, and probably as Stan was reading, you were thinking, wow, (laughs) what's he going to do with that, right? So that's what I've been asking myself all week, but... um... There are 12 men named Obadiah in your Old Testament, so we don't really know which of them was the one who wrote this. However, many folks suggest that it was the Obadiah of 1 Kings 18. The name Obadiah means servant of Yahweh. It was a very common name, probably like Joshua was, God is salvation, kind of in our day, maybe like John or James or Stephen, really common names in, in our culture. This is a very common name, evidently. But in 1 Kings 18, we have a little bit more information about a certain Obadiah, which lends people to believe that he is the Obadiah that wrote the prophetic book of Obadiah. Now, in 1 Kings chapter 18, this is what we read. You can just listen. After many days, the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year, saying, go show yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain upon the earth. 
So Elijah went to show himself to Ahab. Now the famine was so severe in Samaria, and Ahab called Obadiah, who was over the household of Ahab. Now Obadiah feared the Lord greatly, and when Jezebel cut off the prophets of the Lord, Obadiah took a hundred prophets and hid them by fifties in a cave and fed them bread and water. And Ahab said to Obadiah, go throughout the land and all... And to all the springs of water and to all the valleys, perhaps we may find grass to save the horses and, and keep the mules alive and not lose some of the animals. So they divided the land between them to pass through it. Ahab went in one direction by himself and Obadiah went in another direction by himself. And as Obadiah was on the way, behold, Elijah met him and Obadiah recognized him, fell on his face and said, it is, is it you, my Lord Elijah? And he answered, it is I. Now go tell your Lord, behold, Elijah is here. This is a really fascinating story, even if this isn't the Obadiah uh, that wrote the prophetic writings that we're going to be studying. Ahab was the most wicked king in the northern kingdom. He was more evil than all the kings that preceded him, and probably no one who came after him was as evil as Ahab and his wife Jezebel. Obadiah, on the other hand, was a godly man. He was a godly man, the Bible says, who feared the Lord from his youth. How is it that a godly man gets to be over the house of the most ungodly king that has, has ever ruled in the northern kingdom? We don't know the answer to that. We really don't. Well, we, we know very little, actually, about Obadiah. Four things we do know that you probably picked up on. He was a devout believer in the Lord. He had feared the Lord since he was a young man, since, uh, since his youth. He hid a hundred prophets when Jezebel was trying to kill them. He hid a hundred of God's prophets, and he fed them over the next however long. He fed them and kept them alive. Not an not a easy feat in and of itself, being that there's no food lion or farm freshes or any way of feeding them uh, as Obadiah did. Obadiah has been called by Bible scholars, this Obadiah of 1 Kings 18, as an oasis in the desert because he stood, it seems like, as a contrast to the, op, uh, the uh, apostasy, the national apostasy of Israel and of, of Jezebel and Ahab in particular. He did not bend the knee to Baal when so many others did. Charles Spurgeon said of this Obadiah that, that God had raised him up for this position that God had put this godly man in this very unlikely position. Other commentators like F.B. Myers said that Obadiah was a man of spiritual compromise. And that was the reason why he was serving in Ahab's court. In the story I was reading you just a moment ago, Obadiah says to Elijah, you can't ask me to do this because as soon as I go and get Ahab, you're going to disappear. And then Ahab's going to kill me because you're not here. And Elijah said, no, I'll be here. And of course, he went and got him and he was there. And, and so Obadiah evidently serves in the court of Ahab in the same way that Joseph served in the court of Pharaoh, in the same way that Mordecai waited in, in the courtyards of Asher. Asherus and, and, and attended him in some way. Daniel served the pagan king Nebuchadnezzar. Paul said or talked about the saints who served in Caesar's house. In the same way, Obadiah was a man, a godly man, who served in the court of Ahab. Now, God has placed all kinds of people in, in just unlikely places. Remember, Jonah served under Jeroboam II. Here's where Obadiah serves. And, and, and again, I can't guarantee you that this Obadiah is the same one writing this prophetical book, but, uh, but it seems to point to him being that he is of that time period and, and God spends a little bit of time talking about Obadiah himself. Now, 
We want to focus on the record of the message that Obadiah left behind. Now, like Jonah's message from last week, this is not a message directed at Israel. Now, I told you last week, and I, and I believe it absolutely, that Jonah was a message written to, excuse me, spoken to the Ninevites, but it was recorded for the Israelites and for all of us. You know, I can't really say that about Obadiah's letter, although God isn't included in his Bible, so there has to be some things he wants us to glean from it, and I'm going to hopefully share some of those things with you this morning. But this is a message that's directed at the Edomites, uh, the descendants of Esau, and, uh, and, and really the book itself is, is just a recording of that message directed at Edom. Now, it's a pronouncement, the whole book is a pronouncement of judgment against the, the descendants of Esau, the, they're called Edomites, that they will be destroyed. Now, you remember Jonah went to the Ninevites and it had the same sort of message, you know, God's going to destroy you. This is the message that, that Obadiah is bringing. Now, let me just set these boys in context for those of you that may not know them, although I imagine most of you are familiar with them. Abraham had a son named Isaac, and Isaac had two sons. They were twins. They were born to him, and, and one of them was Esau, the older, came out first, and then there was Jacob. The story goes that Jacob's hanging on to the heel of his brother, right, which kind of made him always this, this, this idea that he's trying to supplant his brother. And indeed, Esau, he's the oldest brother, but Jacob is the chosen brother, and he is the one who will supplant his brother. That don't mean that he was the chosen brother in the sense that God is going to choose Jacob to save him and not Esau, but what I am saying to you is that God is choosing Jacob to be the one through whom Jesus would come and be the one through whom God would count his people. Esau and Jacob fought as children, and they split up eventually, Esau threatening to kill his brother Jacob. He did so because Jacob, his dad's nearly blind, he goes and pretends to be his brother, and his dad blesses him and gives him the blessing. And I mean, when Esau finds out, Esau's so angry, he's going to kill him. Jacob runs off to live with relatives for quite a few years where he marries four women and has a bunch of children, 12 sons actually to be exact. The book of Genesis records for us, though, that when, when Jacob eventually comes back home, you know, he's so afraid of Esau. He's so afraid that Esau is going to kill him. But Esau has long over, you know, he's overcome his grudge against his brother. He's actually glad to see his brother. And I think probably what that means is simply this. He didn't get the blessing, and, and probably he thought as a child or as a young man, well, that means my life's ruined. But by the time Jacob comes back, Esau in his own right is... is is a man with a great family, lots of wealth, lots of money, and lots of power. And so my, my imagination is that he's like, you know, that birthright thing, it wasn't a big deal. So when his brother comes home, he's actually glad to see him. They, they, they reconcile. In fact, the Bible goes on to say they live beside each other. And when their father dies, they bury their father together. But over the years, the descendants of Jacob and the descendants of Esau grew in number and their divide grew as well. The enmity between them increased, and so they were at odds with one another. Before the boys were ever born, God foretold that from these two men would come two separate nations. Later on, God would say, the nation of Jacob I have loved, the nation of Esau I have hated. Now, why does God say he hates the nation of Esau? 
Why does he say he hates the nation of Edom? Well, I think Obadiah gives us the answer to that question. So if you're taking notes, here's the outline for the book. It divides between verses 1 through 14 and then 15 through 21. 1 to 14 is God's judgment on Edom. 15 to 21 is God's restoration of Israel over Edom. Here's what God said that he was going to do to Edom. He said in verse 2, he's going to order the nations all around them to attack them. In verse 2, he says he's going to make them weak and they're going to become a despised nation. In verse 4, he says, I'm going to bring you down. In verse 6, he says, you will be ravished and nothing will be left. And he used that illustration. He said, you know, when, when people come and they steal your grapes, they always leave a few. When robbers come in, they don't steal everything, but that's now how it's going to be with you. When I'm finished with you, you will be ravished and there will be nothing left of you. In verse 8, he says, I'm going to destroy your wisdom, talking to the Edomites. And finally, in verse 9, he says, I will wipe you out. I will totally destroy you. Now, Jonah wasn't nearly as explicit as Obadiah is in his pronouncement of judgment. You remember that Jonah came and with seven words said, in 40 days, God's going to destroy you. And said, in 40 days, God's going to wipe you out. Okay? Uh, but they repented. They repented and they turned back to God. That is not the case with the Edomites. There is no indication that Edom ever listened to God. And I want to suggest that, that Edom was a recipient of God's mercy, just like all of us have been. God's warnings to all of us are, are God's mercy to us. They're his call for us to repent and turn back, just as he forgave the Ninevites and didn't destroy them, even as he said he would through Jonah at their repentance. So I believe he would have done the same for Edom, but they did not repent. Isaiah, the major prophet, says this about Edom in chapter 34. Beginning in verse 8, Isaiah prophesies and he says, For the Lord has a day of vengeance, a year of recompense for the cause of Zion. Edom's streams will be turned into pitch, and its loose earth into brimstone, and its land will become burning pitch, and it will not be quenched night or day. Its smoke will go up forever. From generation to generation, it'll be desolate. None will pass through it forever and ever. Here's what God means by that pronouncement of judgment from Isaiah. He's saying, I'm going to totally destroy Edom forever. The fire that is not quenched is not fire that burns and goes on and on and on and on forever. The fire that is not quenched is fire that doesn't go out before it's consumed everything that it's going to consume. The fire is not still burning in Edom, and neither is the smoke still rising in Edom. Both of those are symbolic to represent the fact that Edom's destruction would be absolute, and they would never, ever, ever come back from this. So why does God, why is God so intent on their destruction? Why does God say he's going to obliterate them, wipe them off the face of the earth, bring them down? What did they do? Well, let's look at the text and I'll show you what they did. Here's what they did. First of all, they stood by and did nothing as Israel was destroyed. Verse 11, which twice God points out in the book of Obadiah that these were their relatives. These were their cousins. This was family. And yet they stood by and did absolutely nothing when people came in and destroyed his people. They were indifferent. They were indifferent. Now keep that word because I'm going to come back to it. They were indifferent at the plight and the needs of their cousins, the Israelites. 
Number two, they celebrated the destruction of Israel in verse 12. In verse 10, they joined in. They were cruel to Israel. They piled on with what other people were doing. In verses 13 and 14, it tells us that they looted and further tormented the refugees that remained. After the people who came in and destroyed Israel were finished, people were displaced, their homes were destroyed, their relatives were killed, they were refugees, and the Bible says that the Edomites came across the Jordan River, and there they tormented the refugees. They took advantage of the place where they were, and they looted them, and, and, uh, and they tormented those who remained. And then finally, in verse 3, their pride made them feel immune from their responsibility and accountability to God's judgment. He says, you think you live in this place where you cannot be reached. You think you live in such a way that no army, nobody can get to you. I want to tell you, though you make your home in the stars, though you fly as high as the eagle flies, I will bring you down. This is what God says. Why did God do it? Well, why, why was God so upset with Edom? He was so upset with Edom because they didn't care, they didn't help, they were absolutely indifferent to the needs of Israel, their cousins. Now, that's, the book of, that's really the book of Obadiah, okay? There is a second half to the book, which we'll look at in just a moment, where God promises to Israel, I'm going to restore you. But that's the main part of this prophetic word against Edom. And so the question for us today, you know, what is, is there an application in that for you and me this morning? Is there something there that you and I can, can glean from what God said to the Edomites that would, be, that would help us, that would affect us positively, that could change our lives or whatever? Well, I think so. And I have three words of application for us this morning from this text and, uh, and you think, uh, you, think you, you, you follow me and you tell me whether you think I'm, I'm being true as, a, as far as an application from this text. So here I'm going to jump in. Here's my three applications. Number one, just as Edom had a responsibility to care for and protect God's people, we also have a responsibility to do the same. Just as God expected Edom to care for his people, by the way, their cousins, God expects us today to care for God's people. Now, it's hard right here. I want you to follow me. It's hard for me to make a one-to-one -one comparison here. And the reason for that is because, is because God's people today uh, are those who follow Christ, not biological Israel. Now, before any of you stand up and say, God's not finished with Israel, I'm not trying to make any statement about national Israel right now. What I'm trying to say to you is that in the new covenant, God treats the followers of Christ as his people. We today, what the future holds, we can talk about another time, but we today, under the new covenant, we the followers of the Lord Jesus, we are the people of God, both Jews and Gentiles. And Peter makes this clear because Peter says in his first letter, this is what he says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Now, those of you that have been here for this entire study, you recognize those words. 
They're from the prophet Hosea. You remember Hosea said, you who are not my people will be my people. Peter, like Paul, is quoting Hosea here. And he's talking about believers, followers of Christ. And he says, we are the people of God. So one-on-one comparison there doesn't, doesn't go all that well. But here's the second thing. You know, in, in, this, in this application that I'm making, I'm not talking to us as Americans. The one-on-one comparison here isn't us as Americans, but the, the, the comparison here is us as followers of the Lord Jesus. As Edom was kin to Israel, they were cousin nations, if you would, so we are kin, even brothers and sisters, to all those who are in the body of Christ. So back to my application, we have a responsibility, even as Edom did to Israel, we have a responsibility to care for our brothers and sisters in the body of Christ, even as they were supposed to. Now let me see if I can't defend that biblically. Philippians chapter 2, verse 4, do not merely look out for your own personal interest, but also for the interest of others. Galatians 6, 2, bear one another's burdens and thereby fulfill the law of Christ. Romans 12, 10, be devoted to one another in brotherly love, giving preference to one another in honor. Galatians 6, 10, so then while we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially to those who are of the household of faith. 1 Timothy 5, 8, but if anyone does not provide for his own and especially those of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Proverbs 21, 13, he who shuts his ear to the cry of the poor will also cry himself and not be answered. Galatians 2, 10 is a follow-up to that. They only asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. James chapter 1, verse 27, pure and undefiled religion in the sight of God and Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world. Now, let me hasten to say that I don't believe any believer today would celebrate the suffering and plight of any brother and sister in Christ in the world. I don't think any of us would celebrate. And I don't think we'd pile on and I don't think we'd exploit our brothers and sisters with more suffering if we see them down. But there is one indictment against Edom that I believe can apply to us. And that is that we can be just as guilty as them of indifference, of simply not caring Burying any knowledge, burying any knowledge that we have of their plight and their suffering and saying to ourselves, it's not my responsibility. I'm not there. My life doesn't touch theirs. It's not my responsibility. That brings me to my second application. Here's my second application. Fight against indifference and apathy that can so easily overtake our hearts. I want to challenge every one of us who follow Christ to fight against this this inward draw of our sinful nature to be all about me. Indifference is a deadly sin, forever a spectator on the sidelines of what God desires in life. You know, I read this story, you've heard this before, I believe, but a fellow at a bus stop says to another man, he says, you know, the biggest problem in our country is this ignorance and apathy. And the other guy replies, he says, you know, I don't know what that means and I don't care. Indifferent spectators fail to take notice of those in need. They fail to see the aid that they can provide people all around them. They fail to get involved. They fail to take a stand for what is right. Calvin Miller, who was a, a famous pastor probably, you know, when I was a young man, but Calvin Miller tells about this story about meeting a police officer in, um, 
in a, in a restaurant one time. He had a can of mace holstered on his belt, and, and Miller asked him, how does that work? And he says, well, you spray it in their face, and, uh, and you slip the cap off, you spray it in their face. And Miller said, well, what does it do? Does it knock them out? And the guy said, the police officer said, no, they're still conscious, but they're inert. He said, do you know what inert means? It means they, they can't move. And Miller replied, he said, man, I've been a local church pastor for 20 years. I understand conscious, but inert, better than you might imagine. You know, folks, let me be honest, and I'm not trying to be cutting because I'm just as guilty of being conscious as inert as the next guy, but I want to encourage us to fight against doing nothing. I want to encourage us. I believe the application of Obadiah, and you might think I'm reaching, and maybe I am, but I think the application of Obadiah, God's condemnation of Edom, was that you were indifferent when my people were suffering and my people were under attack and my people were hurting. You didn't care. You did nothing to help. And so my application for us is let's not do that. Let's, remember the story of the Good Samaritan? I know you know the story. Jesus told it. When asked, who is the guy who's the neighbor? And, and he talks about the Jewish men who walk by on the other side, making sure they don't touch the guy in case he's dead and become ceremonially unclean. They walk through on the other side. The Samaritan is the guy who goes right to him and steps into the need and helps the need. And Jesus said, you know, that's the kind of man and woman that you and I need to be. I'm not to walk by on the other side of the road indifferent to the needs of others. And we have to fight against that because it is our natural response to be unresponsive and unsympathetic. I must act. I can't ignore. I must care. And that brings me to my third application for us. And again, this one I think stems right from the book of Obadiah. And you judge whether I'm speaking truth. Here's my third application. We should not think that we are immune to the discipline of God. We should not think that as a church family, that somehow or another we are exempt from God's chastisement for our apathy, or that you individually are somehow exempt from God's discipline for your own unwillingness and your own indifference to get involved in the needs of others who are hurting all around us. That's evidently what Edom thought, and they thought we're untouchable. Even if God does have a problem with this, nobody can bring us down, nobody can touch us. Of course, God's word to them was, I can bring you down from wherever. As I've contemplated this this week, my conclusion was this. The reason I think we think this, are you tracking with me? The reason I think we think this is because, it's not because we don't think that God can discipline us. We just don't think God will. We're not afraid of God disciplining us in any way. After all, after all, didn't Jesus bear our sin on the cross? Didn't Jesus take the punishment for my sin, right? So what do I have to fear? You know, uh, it is true. Jesus bore my death. He bore, my, he bore the wrath of God against me. And he took the punishment of my sin, my death. Jesus took it and paid for it. But, but nonetheless, listen to what the word of God says. And this is written in the New Testament to all of us. Are you listening? Have you completely forgotten this word of encouragement that addresses you as a father addresses his son? It says, my son... 
Do not make light of the Lord's discipline. Do not lose heart when he rebukes you because the, Lord's discip- because the Lord disciplines the one he loves and he chastens everyone he accepts as a son. Endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as his children for what children are not disciplined by their father. And if you are not disciplined and everyone undergoes discipline, then you are not legitimate, not true sons of daughters at all. Now, if you don't get what he's saying, let me tell you what it is. I'm not going to spank your children. I'm not going to touch your children. I'm not going to discipline your children. They are your children. Now, I may help you by by pointing things out, but I'm not disciplining your children. They're yours. That's your job. But I don't expect you to discipline my children, and I have a responsibility to discipline my children. Now, here's here's what the author of Hebrews is saying. He says, if you're not being disciplined, it's because you don't belong to God, because God disciplines his kids. So here's my point. Here's my point. We should not think that our indifference and apathy is somehow, we're immune to the discipline of a father who loves us and wants us to be more than indifferent and more than apathetic. Let me continue. Moreover, we all have had human fathers who disciplined us and we respected them for it. How much more should we submit to the father of spirits and live? They disciplined us for a little while as they thought best, but God disciplines us for our good in order that we may share in his holiness. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and of peace for those who have been trained by it. Now, I'll be the first to admit, I really wish that God would spank me at the very moment of my failures. I really do. Because then I'd see the one-on-one corollary. And sometimes it's kind of harder to see the one-on-one corollary, which can make me think that God doesn't discipline or whatever. But, But here's the point, everyone. Here's the application that Edom missed, and we don't want to dare miss it. And that is that God disciplines us. He disciplines us as his children. Now, Jesus bore the wrath of God against us. We shall receive the gift of life from God. We shall be raised to live with him. But, 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 that doesn't mean that in the meantime, he's not going to discipline us. We need to affirm that. We need to remember that. The beginning of wisdom is to fear the Lord. Listen, God doesn't want you to fear him like a cruel and harsh person. You know, being a pastor, you get to hear all kinds of things. And I know some of your, some of your parents were pretty harsh and pretty cruel. Some of you are living with some of the scars of that. Some of you have known harsh and cruel people who have been your bosses, who have been neighbors, and you've had to endure harshness. That's not what God's talking about. God's talking about us fearing God as we fear a father who loves us, but he loves us so much. He's not afraid to use the belt to to make sure we understand truth and know what's best for us. Every good father here disciplines his children, and God is no exception to that. So how do I live out these applications? And maybe this is just kind of a nuance of my applications, but, but I've got two things I want to say here. Number one is, is, hey, let's act on this. Let's act on what I'm sharing with you. Let's not, just, let's not just file it in the back of my head. Let's actually do something. When I see someone who's hurting, step into that hurt. When I see someone uh, who's in a position, if I'm in a position to help someone who's, who's being wronged, Do not run the other way. Do not say it's not my responsibility. It is your responsibility. If I see someone destroying their life through wrongful choices or addictive habits, man, I need to step into that and try to assist them. Will they receive it? Not necessarily, but that doesn't doesn't somehow absolve me from my responsibility to step out of my indifference and act. If I see injustices or immorality prevailing in our society, and we see that a lot, I need to step into that. I need to be a part of that. 
And here's the second way of, of living out these, these three applications. Let's not bury our heads in the sand and somehow think that's an excuse. It's not an excuse for me to keep myself in ignorance. And you know what, folks? Our brothers and sisters around the world are really hurting. They're hurting on two fronts. They're hurting on, on persecution and they're hurting in the realm of poverty. And here's what I want to say to you. Um, I need, to, I need to make myself aware of these things. I cannot say the Syrian Christian refugees are not my problem. I cannot say that. I cannot say that the brothers and sisters being martyred from Kenya to North Korea to Egypt, that's not my worry. I cannot say that the brothers and sisters scrounging for food to survive in the Congo is not my issue. That's what the Edomites said. That's not what we who follow Jesus say. We say it is our issue. We say we are responsible. We say God has called us to care. And, and so here's what I want to say to you. Subscribe to something like the voice of the martyrs, where, where you get information so you can at least pray for our brothers and sisters who are being persecuted. Subscribe to the voice. Of, it won't cost you anything. Subscribe to the World Vision magazine where you can learn about, where you can learn about how we can help our brothers and sisters who just, they don't have, they don't have food to eat, guys. And we have a responsibility to our brothers and sisters. I think that is the message of Obadiah. And that is how it applies to us today. That brings me to the last half of the book. And the last half of the book, 15 through 21, is just Obadiah's forecast that victory is coming to Israel over Edom. Here's what, here's what Obadiah says. He says, you know, I, I'm going to judge all the nations. And by the way, I've already judged my own nation, he says. I have judged my own people. I will judge all nations. And Edom, you will pay in full for what you've done. That's what he says. I've judged my own nations, Edom. I've judged my, I've judged my own nation, Israel, Edom. I've judged the nations of the world. I will judge the nations of the world. And I am going to judge you. And you will pay for your indifference and for, and for your piling on my people. God acknowledges that he sent the Assyrians and he has sent Babylon down to, to obliterate the north and to take captivity Judah. And he says, I'm going, to do, I'm going to bring up all the nations. But he says, then he says this in verse 18, Edom would be straw, Israel will be the fire, and Edom will be burned up in the flames. In verse 21, he says, the ones that God saves will live on Mount Zion and rule over Edom. God is going to raise up Israel, and he does. He brings them back from captivity, 70 years in Babylon, and he puts them back in the land, and they rule over Edom. In verse 17, he says, on Mount Zion will be deliverance. It will be holy, and the house of Jacob will possess its inheritance. In verse 21, he says, saviors shall go up on Mount Zion to rule Mount Esau, and the kingdom shall be the Lord's. By the time Jesus comes on the scene, Edom no longer is a distinct nation at all. In fact, there's very few Edomites left, only Herod. Herod is the most famous that we would have known uh, as the king who rules over, uh, over Israel as a puppet king. But they were scattered, they were overthrown, and they were destroyed by Judas Maccabeus in the intertestamental period. But at the time of Obadiah, man, it would have seemed ludicrous to say that Israel will rule over Edom. But they did. They would destroy Edom, and they would rule over Edom. Edom today remains as nothing more than an archaeological tourist attraction. We have the luxury of hindsight, but they did not. And yet we see the fulfillment of God's promise to Obadiah. All right, let me end this morning with a reminder, uh, a historical story reminder of why God said he would judge Edom. 
At approximately 3.20 in the morning on March 13, 1964, 28-year-old Kitty Genovese was returning home to her nice middle-class home in this middle-class area from her job in, uh, in Queens, New York, where she was a bar manager. She parked her little red Fiat nearby in a parking lot, turned off the light, started to walk to her second-floor apartment, which was about 100 feet away from where she parked. She got as far as the street light when a man grabbed her. She screamed. Lights went on in the apartment building. She yelled, oh my God, he stabbed me. Please help me. Windows opened in the apartment building and one man yelled out. He said, uh, let the girl alone. And the attacker looked up, shrugged and walked off down the street. Genevieve struggled to get to her feet. Lights went back off in the apartment building and the attacker came back out and stabbed her again. She again cried out, I'm dying, I'm dying. And the lights came back on. The windows opened again in the apartment and the assailant again left. This time got in his car and drove away and all the lights went back off and all the windows shut back down. And uh, the assailant, uh, Genovese, ma managed to make it up to, the, um, up to her door. City bus went by seeing her stabbed. It was now 3.35 in the morning. The attacker returned once more. He found her in the doorway at the foot of the stairs leading to her apartment. He stabbed her a third time, and this time he killed her. It was 3.50 in the morning when police received the first call. They responded quickly. Within two minutes, they were on the scene. Genovese, of course, was already dead. The only person to call, a neighbor of Genovese's, uh, revealed that he had phoned only after much thought and only after phoning a friend to ask what he should do. He said, and I quote, I didn't want to get involved. That story is a famous story. You probably know it. Psychologists and psychiatrists have, have studied that story, trying to figure out why in the world people did nothing when, uh, when she was being killed. And the bottom line is they didn't want to get involved. They were just indifferent to Kitty's need. I end saying this. May we not stand by indifferent as God's people to the plight of God's people around the world. We, we live in a world that's been unified with all kinds of mass technology and mass travel. It's hard to believe our little mission team is, you know, all the way on the other side of the world. And they'll be back in a day. Hard to imagine, isn't it? The world has shrunk, everybody, and we cannot remain indifferent to the needs of our brothers and sisters around the world. Let's be proactive. Let's choose this day to get involved. Let's pray. Father, thank you for really caring about us and caring about your family, and thank you for making us responsible for one another. And I realize that Edom, or the, Esau, the descendants of Esau and the descendants of Jacob, they, I realize it's a different dynamic, but yet you expected Esau's descendants to be responsible for their cousins, and in, the, in a similar way, but even much more so, you've called us to care for our family members, our brothers and sisters. Father, I pray that we would leave here this morning with a resolve to actually do something about this, find a way to get involved, find a way to, find a way to not just be oblivious to the needs of my brothers and sisters around the world. May, may we say no to indifference and yes to, Lord, use me, here am I. Send me, help me to pray, help me to give, whatever, Lord, use me. Use me and your family. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening. This message has been brought to you by Bacon's Castle Baptist Church. And if you'd like to learn more about our church, please visit us on the web at www.baconscastle.com.